exploitation makes the world go round. Um, yeah, I think the the best thing is radicalizing small children. Um, <laughs> because if they know from the jump everything is a lie and it is dumb that we operate the way that we do, they're in positions to annoy the crap out of every single one of their teachers and then get to a point like the end of high school right and they're like mm, college maybe not whatever but whatever they decide they know that like all oh, this is imaginary let's raise Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to chapter two of Reading and Raging with Charles C. Patton. I am Charles C. Patton, and thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. This chapter is a conversation with Sonny Campbell. Sonny earned her bachelor's in social anthropology and sociology from the University of Roehampton in London, UK. Her degree had an emphasis in sustainability and international development. This conversation is about the intersectionality of feminism and navigating white spaces. Sunny and I actually met in middle school and we cultivated a friendship on our mutual respect and mutual uh, admiration for track and field. Uh, we both ran hurdles, we both did high jump. We were inseparable really during middle school years and I'm so happy to see the person that she's become and I am so amazed by all the travel that she's done, all of the different cultures that she's immersed herself into, and I'm just so excited for all of you to get to know her and hear her perspective. We decided to base our conversation on the book, The Sisters Are Alright, Changing the Broken Narrative of Black Women in America. And we also decided to base the conversation on an IGTV that was primarily focused on how people, specifically black women, have to navigate within white spaces. And in this IGTV, it was mainly talking about high fashion and how uh, it's difficult to become your full self in these spaces that are not actually primarily for you. This conversation was so enjoyable. I am so thankful for Sunny for allowing me the time to talk with her on these different subjects. The word that we feel fully encapsulates the feeling and the themes that we were discussing within the conversation is ipseity. Ipseity means individual identity or selfhood of sorts. Again, I hope that all of you are registered to vote and if you are not, please go to the link in the description below. It has all the information that you need and with that being said, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to Reading and Raging with Charles C. Patton, the podcast. Through an in-depth analysis of creative written works, thought-provoking conversations, as well as critical commentary on the world around us, RRC serves as a haven for individuals that yearn to inspire and awaken the light from within. Designed to aid each of us in our journeys for self-discovery and enlightenment, pushing us closer to actualizing our unique purpose. We can't wait for you to be a part of this conversation. 
And now, let's rage. you again for agreeing to do this and so how are you doing how's everything on your end how are you dealing with quarantine with the civil unrest with all the stuff that's happening wow like what an introduction oh <laughs> um yeah we've known each other for a really long time and i i'm always rooting for you and all of your projects you are always doing something really interesting and I'm super grateful that you thought of me when you were thinking about people to have on the podcast. Um, I'm doing well. I mean, as well as you can do in quarantine. Um, you know, I am living with at-risk people, so I've been taking a lot of care um, in myself and the other people around me and being really uh, cautious. I, At the start of quarantine, I was in New York, and then lost my job because I was in events and so I moved to Charlotte to live with my grandparents and it was a really good move and I was able to like find a job fairly quickly so now I'm living and working in Charlotte. Well for those of you who do not know Sunny has literally been around the world and back again. <laughs> so yeah. It's really, it's kind of surreal to know that you are back in Charlotte, like for this time and everything is going well. And I can only imagine what that's like, you know, to lose your job because of what's going on right now. And, but I'm really glad that you're, you know, you're feeling good, you're on your feet and everything's smooth sailing, right? Well, as smooth sailing as they can be right now. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as, uh, what we came to discuss today, when we were talking earlier about what we were interested in, uh, there were an array of things that we uh, thought that would be great to have a conversation about. Yeah. What really stood out was the idea of intersectionality in feminism and what that looks like for specifically Black women and Black folks, Black femme folks who um, operate in these uh, in this society right now, as well as uh, being black and in navigating space, white spaces, particularly, um, I would say, upper class white spaces that you know that don't necessarily affirm us in the right ways. Uh, so, uh, can you tell us like what works we decided to base our conversation on? Okay. Um, so there's two things that really stuck out when we were we were talking about what topics to um, speak about. One of them was definitely intersectional feminism. Um, my experience has been an evolution of like trying different things, reading different things, and then just kind of feeling that like nobody truly understood my point of view. Um, and then I read uh, The Sisters Are All Right and that was basically the closest I had come in feminist literature to kind of understanding a lot of the stereotypes that Black women have and Black, like, femme folk have and um, kind of that. And I, I really enjoyed the book and I highly recommend it. And then the other thing um, was an IGTV, which was surprising for me because 
I don't know, I just kind of don't really take them seriously. But um, as people have gotten more uh, politically active on social media, especially Instagram, you've found like these real gems of people having honest conversations about what their life looks like and and the effects that a lot of this um, normalized racism looks like. And Danielle Prescott did a really good IGTV just talking about working in in luxury and working in fashion and how that has affected her view of other people's um, Instagram activism and a lot of things and she said that I, I definitely related to um, having access to upper uh, class wealth and and also working in, in luxury and in those kind of places where black is only fashionable for periods of time. Right. So that's really interesting. I definitely resonate with the with the idea of navigating spaces that aren't really particularly for you and that are really, it's almost a foe of affirmation. Mm. It's sort of like, uh, this is the trend, black is the trend right now. And so we're going to milk this as long as we can, even though it's not really something that can be sustained in a way that is, uh, that is beneficial for those uh, people like black folks. And so uh, what would you say, uh, more so going along the lines of uh, the perspective of um, the Sisters Are All Right with feminism and the evolution of uh, Black feminism, what that looks like, and, the, and what you have learned through your time and your experience and, and how you identify as a Black feminist or as a feminist or however you identify mm. in that space? Um, intersectional feminism is the, is kind of what I consider myself and fall under. Um, and I've also learned in kind of this book and a lot of other books that I've read, um, is to hold space for other people's ability to learn. Um, I think that's really important. People often have to make like very public mistakes to be able to, to move forward. And I think, um, yeah, that's been something that I've learned, but also holding space for other people whose um, struggles don't get highlighted as much. Like, or it's very common to know of like a black single mom and know that like black single mom struggle. Um, it's, and it's to a, a certain degree, it's kind of celebrated as like the, the pinnacle of black women being strong. Um, and kind of the other things that I was able to explore through this book is like, what is the detriment of being strong? What is the detriment in, in teaching your daughters that they have to be like a strong black woman? Is it at the expense of their fragility? Is it at the expense of their emotional vulnerability? Like those types of things. And, and so as much as some of these stereotypes have been helpful, um, and building or building and rebuilding a sense of self, a lot of them can also be hard to dismantle and, and a bit detrimental. Um, the other thing is holding space for people who have disabilities, who fall under LGBT um, plus 
and and non-binary and and people like that and a lot of traditional black feminists that I had been reading before um, the girls are all right didn't seem to have a lot of um, inclusive ideas around these groups and even this book doesn't go far enough and just learning where your blind spots are and finding people to invite into witness kind of because they don't really need anyone to like say like oh this is our struggle they need people to like listen and and when you're in a space that would be valuable to them or they're not they don't have access to to pull them in and I think that's kind of what I've, I've taken is that you know I I have to reach back so what is that what does that look like though when when we say that because what what I've come to understand about like the feminist movement and and all of that was that it was very much so centered around the white woman's experience mm-hmm. and uh, and even with like even with shows like Blackish and and things like that, where they sort of touch on certain issues that are uh, feminist in in nature and sort of speaking from that lens, it was almost from the standpoint of like you would have to sacrifice some part of yourself in order to uh, fight the good fight, or uh, or you can be for black liberation and for the feminist movement. It had to be separate. And so, so how do you feel that the, how do you feel that that has been the de- detriment to black women, to black femme folks and, and how, and do you feel as though the feminist movement can actually be one of inclusivity? Definitely. I think that a lot of people like in the history of both feminist uh, movements and black liberation, there have been black women who worked and, you know, struggled and did this on top of raising children and on top of running households. Um, Almost all like social movements in the U.S. are based off of um, people of color and especially women of color um, have done a lot for everyone in society and I think yeah and so when we talk about feminism I uncenter white women basically (laughs) and that's something that definitely you had to learn because white feminists are really like I remember for a period of time Lena Dunham was like the go-to feminist of America and I was like what in the (laughs) world that woman is like what yeah like take Taylor Swift, like I really don't care. Taylor Swift should be a like better role model for feminist white women than Lena Dunham. But anyway, um, I just uncenter them all. I don't, I don't follow any. I don't actively look for any of their literature. I, you can do what you want, but that's not. You're not doing enough for me to feel like you see your your blind spots. So that's what I did. I just, I don't, I don't care. I don't look. Um, and in the, in the opposite way, I actively seek out um, women of color with disabilities, women of color with, uh, you know, fertility issues, uh, trans women, um, non-binary people, people who identify as them. Um, I actively look for those people and I actively 
read what their experiences have, have given them and how it's educated them. Because um, those are the people that I would want. They always end up being the most radical, which is where you should start if you're going to get any amount of like social change that's not performative. And so I think people kind of get scared at the idea that like radical feminism is like, uh, except for TERFs, no TERFs, none at all. It's like super explain, scary. TERFs yeah. are quote feminist, air quotes, but they're not. So they're trans radical exclusionary feminists. They believe that in order to be a woman or identify as a woman, you have to be born as a woman. So uh, J.K. Rowling. <clears throat> yeah, her. Um, <laughs> But a lot of their arguments just come down to like being very ableist. Like, oh, do you menstruate? It's like, why is that any of your business again? Like, there's tons of women who choose not to menstruate. Does that make me not a woman? No. So all the lines that they draw are very subjective and really annoying. Um, but the rest of like radical feminism really is where people should be paying the most attention. That's where all the new ideas come from. That's where a lot of like interesting and complex conversations about the intersection of race and ability um, and, and gender come in. And those are the people that I really, really enjoy reading. And then as far as like black liberation, like black, my personal opinion is that black liberation should center women because it is without us you right. cannot continue <laughs> if you would like to keep treating us like trash and then be a big mad when black women choose not to look for partners like long-term partners in black men i really don't know what to tell you like if you like a lot of like sociology and criminology will tell you that the U.S. has paid a lot of money to destroy the black family unit. And people think that I, like in that idea, they, they're thinking of like the traditional, quote unquote, traditional family unit, a mom, a dad, and children. But black family, family units have not looked like that for a really long time. We've always been multi-generational and, um, you know, a lot of people living in one house and having a large community of like cousins and, you know, and adopting people into your family. Like how many of your friends are also your cousins? Like right. that is what our family unit looks like. And you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And that's what we should work on. And like, that's the, that's where you're going to get strength. The ability to have community um, really kind of closes a lot of the gaps that you get from, from wealth and like, yeah. education because if you don't know then somebody in your family will know because that's how big your community is and so yeah i think a lot of times um black liberation movements that don't center women don't really get a lot done yeah. and um and also like i feel like most movements should center the most marginalized people like they have well, the should center the most marginalized people oh yeah definitely like that makes the that makes sense that, yeah that never, that never that never made sense to me that uh 
that in a movement for black liberation or in a movement for uh, women liberation or, or whatever liberation it was that you wouldn't center the most marginalized of that group because it, it just, it, it never made sense to me because it's like, well, if you're, if we're only focusing on one group of people that are within this conglomerate of community, then mm -hmm. how are you really pushing for liberation of the entire community? People don't actually want liberation of entire communities. They just want themselves to be better. Like they just want it to be better for them. Yeah. And always, if if you're the most marginalized group, you're also the smallest group. So if the the largest group in in the organization, right, is like upper middle class people, if their ability to like move something forward is one step, the step they're going to take is for them, right. and then they're done. And then it's the most um, marginalized people who are like, well, that was unhelpful. Yeah. I guess we'll try again in 20 years. Right. And then they tend to get upset when people actually call them out on what's actually happening. And it's like, no, we're trying to do, you know, our best for this and that. And, but I feel like that's the good thing that's happened just like six or seven months that we've been in this quarantine a world and 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 the civil unrest that we've seen i feel like that there is even though some of it is extremely performative and there really isn't you know at the crux of it i feel like there is an eruption of consciousness that's happening and it it might not be and it might not look like i don't know it just doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like the rest of the unrest that we've seen over the years like it, it almost feels as if people have time now to sit down and and really be introspective and look at the world for what it really is now there are you know of course people who are still in denial about certain things but i feel like for a lot of people they've they are unable to uh, occupy their minds with with the, their daily lives and have to see the world for what it truly is. It, do you feel like that or you feel like it's really much of the same? I don't know. I usually just have a very cynical view of people moving as groups. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say that I have been surprised at the longevity and I've been surprised at the consistency and message and the ability for um, it to be individualized. Like each city's protests have different demands and still like under a larger banner. I think that speaks to um, some type of movement, some type of growth and this um, idea, but definitely because it's like take three, like it's take three of Black Lives Matter protest. And so we've slowly been learning how to be better at protesting, how to be better at advertising, um, and how to kind of like community speak, right? So those are things that we've gotten better at. Um, I don't really know if it's going to do anything i'm not really interested that much in whether or not it's going to do something because the the experience 
and the trauma that people are going to have from protesting it will do much more. Like, we're not supposed to speak positively about trauma, but talking about, like, the next 45 years of policymaking in the U.S., people are going to very much pull from this era, whether you were, like, in the streets or not. You're going to think of what you saw and, like, how anti quote unquote American it was and how like there's no more invisible bad guy, right? There's no more like shadowy bad guy. We know exactly how bad things can be. Right. And we can actively say like this is the worst case scenario. We have lived it. So whatever we have to do, whatever like flights we have to get over to not have this, we'll hack it. Like it, it doesn't matter. Will we die? Well, we have Corona again. All right, then. It sounds great. That's really interesting. And I, I, I share your, uh, your cynicism in, in the idea of uh, people. Well, from what I took from that was that there, for me, when people speak on like allyship, and all of these things, I have a very cynical view on that, or skeptic. I'm I'm very much so a skeptic when it comes to allyship, mm-hmm. because that the the understanding of allyship is like someone has to show up for you. Someone has to show up for someone else that they might not have the same experiences as, and someone who is more marginalized than they are. And from what I've witnessed in history, from what I've read from all of these different things from what I've experienced in my personal life there's always a moment where they can bow out and and I just I have a hard time trusting that and trusting and putting my faith into someone who who has that ability to to bow out of certain situations what what would you say like your view is on allyship and what that looks like um from even like from a man coming into like the feminist movement or or anything like that um allyship is i have a very complicated relationship with it and i think it's always been one of those things that i would prefer not to like deal with because like i hate that conversation And I find it very irritating, but with, you know, at the beginning with Breonna Taylor and a lot of things that had gotten like international attention, Mm -hmm. the people who were in my WhatsApp being like, hey, Sonny, we just wanted to check on you. I was like, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. I don't want to talk to you at all. I like literally don't speak to me. Um, And so I just ignored them. For like three weeks, I was like not responding to text messages from people, from specifically like white people that I knew outside of America. I was like, I'm not interested in talking to you right now. And then we got like much deeper into it. And I was like, I had that epiphany in my head where it's like, holy crap, like I could be that black friend. Like my friends could be out doing something crazy and someone calls them out and they're like, no, I've got a black friend. And that idea in my head like ruined the whole thing. So I had to like go in our group chat and being like, hey, if someone calls you racist, 
say okay, say I'm sorry, and then ask them how you can change that. Do not say no, do not fight them. And that's kind of where I ended the conversation. Like I don't, I am not the spokesperson from all black people. And that's just what I wanted to make sure that everyone understood is that I am not the spokesperson for all black people. If another black person or another person of color calls you out, they are right. It does not matter anything I've ever said. It doesn't matter at all. They are right and you fix it. And so after that, I was like, this is what the conversation of allyship should be. Because just because me and you have an understanding, like just because me and you are friends, that does not give you permission to use me to get out of some other stuff. And that does not give you permission to ignore other people of color when they call you out. And I think when people take on the banner of ally, they think that they're like safe right. from all criticism because they're trying. It's like, right. mm, I try a lot of stuff. It doesn't mean I'm good at it, but you, <laughs> like, you don't get to not be good at this. This is like really important. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of how I view allyship in, in all forms. Like, if you know this is not your space, please speak last mm -hmm. or don't speak at all. Um, don't, I also don't like when people like take those things and like share them with the larger world. Like, oh, me and my black friend were talking about bonnets and, and then oh, yeah. of course you'll say something crazy and then they'll be like, and then she said, and it's like, no, that was, that was for us. Like, so I think that's, yeah, speak last, if at all, um, and give money, I, give money, give money, <laughs> give money. If you have the resources and you want to be an ally, give money. Right. That, like, there's so many great projects that are happening that just need funding. There's so much stuff that, like, the wealth gap, the gender gap, like all that stuff, just give money. Like, if you actually want to be an ally, pay me. I know that's right. No, absolutely. And I think that one thing that I have learned over the years and uh, just dealing like with my own identity and trying to understand that and navigate that in the, in the spaces that I have been in, it's like, one, I, I understand that I show up as a black man first and my mere, it doesn't matter what my perspective is, doesn't matter who I might be fighting for, doesn't matter um, like any of these things, what, how I identify or whatever, I present to the world as a black man. And for some people, my, the mere presence of me being in there is, uh, is a triggering it can be triggering because I, my, the way that I look like my makeup is shows up as like maybe some trauma that someone might've experienced from someone who, you know, looks like me or, uh, or has like the same, you know, build or whatever. And that was something that I really had to come to grips with and understand and not take personally because sometimes like, uh, especially in, so like when I was in certain groups, like with queer folks and, uh, and I would come into those spaces and there were gender non-conforming folks and trans women and, and whatnot. And 
I was coming in like with my arms open, like I was like, hey, I'm here, yeah. But there were there were instances where they would like look at me funny and be like, no, this isn't, you know, this is for you. Either they, you know, didn't know who I was or, or whatever. But I, I took that the I took that to heart and I was like, well, why is this? I'm like for everybody. Like I, you know, want everyone to feel free and to be loved and and all of this stuff and down with the patriarchy and down with all of this crap. Right? But I had to sit down and I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but ultimately it really doesn't. This isn't a space for you to be like guns ablazing, like this is like and speaking all the time and this and that. Like, no, calm your nerves. Like, you need this is a time for you to amplify voices who are not centered, who don't have the same privileges that you do. Cause I can walk into a space and pass as like, you know, whatever, and other people don't have that privilege. So what would you say to people who, uh, who would look at a movement such as the uh, feminist movement or the womanist movement or however we, you know, would define it as and be like, well, this isn't a place for me, so I'm just gonna, you know, let them have that. Or if they want to, interject their their own selves into it and be the center of conversation um i think it's important to if you're coming into a space where you don't know how like people will react um is to go in like as cautiously as possible because the worst thing i know and even if like all things go right the worst thing would be for you to think that you have something interesting or um that you belong to this part of group like this group and and not do well on the introduction and then have everyone second guess you the entire time um that's important and also a lot of times like gatekeepers do a lot so this usually works better in like physical formats but like um have someone invite you to something show an interest in you know in their group show an interest in that ask how you can support get an invitation and then having someone that basically vouches for you can do a lot for you in spaces that are like super protected i would think of like trans women groups where like if you Yeah, if you wanted to uh, speak with trans women, you should be invited into that space and, and take it very seriously. Um, but I'm not sure how that works online. I don't really uh, participate in a lot of online groups like that. But yeah, and just be ready to be like, oh, you know what? Somebody else has said it better, then that's fine. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like, Every place is not for you. Yeah. Even though, even though it's like, it feels like that, like, oh, like you can, because there, I, I really had to sit with myself and understand why I felt that I can go into any space and be, um, and have a voice there. And how, why did I feel like, there weren't any, like I didn't have to, what was, I'm trying to say, it more like, 
I've been told pretty much all my life by society, by, you know, other people that, uh, uh, that this world is for me in the context of me being a cisgender male and how like, um, I can go in aggressive. I can go in however, and that's, you know, this is my space. I can take it up. And that is so, <laughs> that's so trash in so many ways. <laughs> Because it's like you aren't you aren't giving space for other people. You aren't giving space for other perspectives. You aren't truly, you know, learning and and really taking a step back to be a true like person for the people. I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really funny how like things from kindergarten come back. You can't listen if you're talking, and and so. Yeah, but I, I like the amount of self-awareness that definitely had to go into that, uh, realizing that every every place is not for you. You don't have to speak every time for people to know you're there. And yeah. So what would you say, because um, you were touching on like this performative activism that people have, especially on social media, and we've seen a lot of this on you know, Instagram during when the protests uh, were at their their height. Uh, how would, what is your relationship with this performative activism that you have seen and have experienced? Well, first of all, I had to tell a lot of people to delete black squares um, because we're not doing that over here. Um, but performative activism for me, like, I only really get annoyed when I know for a fact you've been in situations and I've made like eyes at you to be like, do something and you have not done it. Those are the people that I was calling out. If you're like some face wash brand and you've got a black square, like, <laughs> okay. Um, but also drop those diversity numbers, like right. where, where they at. And so I think, I find personal um, performative activism less important and less harmful than corporate performative um, activism. And so I spend my time on corporate performative activism. I think that's much more important um, because you can see very clearly in almost all companies, there is a divide between um, management and like executive level and the diverse. So when you're looking at companies, diversity breakdowns, you should ask them to break it into um, a general population and then their management and executive branches because even companies that boast of like a huge amount of diversity, it's all at the bottom, which, which is like, okay, cool. That's great. But nothing will get done until it's at also at the top. And so those are the people that I call out. Those are the, the places where I'm like, yeah, definitely your social media team definitely has black people on it. Right. Because duh, but your SVP, up there, I'm not seeing anything. And that is where you need to like focus attention. And we're so, so past the days where you could be like, oh, well, nobody's qualified. This is a lie. Right. This is a lie. 
you purposely chose people because, like, this is a lie. And also, don't make your only black person be the SVP of human resources. <laughs> like, I don't know how I, I don't know how else to tell you this. That is almost as bad as having nobody there. If the only black person on your executive team is human resources, don't don't even put their picture up there. Don't don't put it up there because you have just showed me that you expect this one black person to carry your entire diversity or your entire message. You don't pay that lady enough. Yeah, I know you don't. So Absolutely. No. And it's so interesting that you say that because, and I, dealing with like navigating spaces of whiteness and just seeing, and I'm speaking in perspective of like when I'm working with Microsoft and just these, you know, top tech companies and whatnot. Wait, wait, wait. Can I just tell you that email that you sent to them? I was like... (laughs) Yo, Charles got a second job lined up or what? (laughs) That's hella brave. I don't really know if I'd be doing that. Yeah, I know. I worked for a company that was really, um, and they were doing something wild. And I was like, LOL, wait until I tell like the shade room or something. I was not writing an email to people. Not, no, no. It was, I went out on a limb there. And uh, thankfully, uh, it didn't end, you know, badly for me. But I mean, it just depends on how you think about it. If I was to be fired because of that, would I even really need to work there? Right, but like, but still, yeah, money is money. Right. It's all fun and games until you got to pay rent. So you got to pay bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and but what I, the conversation that was happening, like over the course of time that I was with them. Um, and I, there was no one uh, from their senior leadership team, from EVPs, like anybody who was black, like no one was. And their idea of diversity and inclusion was having a white woman. And when I would ask so many times, like, okay, are there like no black people who are, you know, there to take these positions and a lot of times if not every single time I would ask this question it would be like well they don't really stay long enough to go up the ladder for them to you know such and then I'm like well why don't they stay long enough like well then what's the problem here and it's like and then I was thinking there are so many times where people outsource uh and I don't want to like say outsource human beings but like they go outside of the company to bring people in, you know, as senior leadership. So I, I don't understand like what the, the disconnect is here. And it's crazy because I worked in an HR department for a while. And so retention is something that we talked about. And one of the like fun facts that I learned, I don't know if it's fun, but basically um, if you have an employee quit or leave a position, it costs, one and a half years of their pay to replace that person. So that's why people try and do like orientation weeks and all of these types of things because they're trying to build like corporate loyalty because it is expensive to replace people. Yeah. And so 
what that story, what it sounds like to me is they know exactly what their problem is and have decided it's too expensive to change and that they would rather just not and hire people and let them leave. Because I mean, when you're at Microsoft, like my, Microsoft is not like, I don't know, like a food chain, right? The amount of opportunities in that pool it's kind of low. I mean, it's Microsoft, it's Google, it's Facebook, right? right? So, and all of this, they hire back and forth from each other anyway. So, yeah, that's very it's true. just going to be like, uh, if you're going to leave now, you're going to come back in like three years, right? right? So there's no benefit because they, they have a huge amount of um, control over the job market. They have a huge amount of control over their competitors job markets i mean it's like the the banks in america like it, it, yeah. you live in charlotte you work for yeah. wells fargo Absolutely. or bank of america yeah. and if bank of america yeah yeah every time bank of america has a layoff wells fargo has a, hires a bunch of people and they just go back and forth so it's like there is no incentive to do better mm-hmm. absolutely and what I realized though, and I, I guess I would, I'm just the type of person that, I don't know, I, I've found that I don't think that I can be in a place where I feel like I'm sacrificing like my soul and like my integrity just for a paycheck. Like I get it. I completely understand like the privilege that comes along with that with having the ability to choose that option. Um, And when I was just hearing so many different conversations about like speaking about people in the form of like data and numbers, and I'm like, these are people's experiences. These are people who, who like have like a life and have like the fullness of, of who they are, like coming to work. and, And you're talking about them as if they're some, like number or some like insignificant thing. And that just, that really bothered me and it still does. I hate to break it to you. Capitalism might not be for you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have been, I've been doing so much reading on like all of these different structures and I'm like, none of this works for us for real. All of this is just built on top of the backs of our people, and it just continues to do so. <laughs> Exploitation makes the world go round. Um, yeah, I think the the best thing is radicalizing small children. Um, <laughs> because... If they know from the jump everything is a lie and it is dumb that we operate the way that we do, they're in positions to annoy the crap out of every single one of their teachers and then get to a point like the end of high school, right? And they're like, mm, college, maybe not, whatever. But whatever they decide, they know that like, oh, this is imaginary. Money, right. it's paper. What is this? Um, yeah, the goal for me personally, is to get myself out of capitalism um, via 
purchase of land. Wow, look at that, I'm a colonizer. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, I I agree that capitalism is not where it's at. It's, it's not, not doing anything for me personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, but as far as like corporations, I found out I can put up with a lot, honestly, if, if the paycheck's good enough. Um, I'm very bougie and I like nice things and money helps. Yeah, um, money helps a lot. The things that I find that are actually like kind of more important is that I like the people that I work with because you're there a lot. And so like I'll say with like 100% certainty that I will not work for oil and gas, right? right? I won't work for oil and gas. I will not work for insurance companies. I probably won't work for banks. There's very few tech places I would work. Yeah. Um, so where does that leave me? Fashion, great. <laughs> Fashion and healthcare. Um, and I've had fun in both places. I really enjoyed working in fashion. I don't know if you can even say that. I was in HR in a fashion conglomerate, but. And it's still the same. Yeah. Um, and now I work in healthcare and that's great too. So. But yeah, I've, I've given up on trying to find somewhere perfect. I mean, I graduated with an anthropology and sociology degree. When I tell you I got out of college and was like straight to NGOs, <laughs> I thought that's what I was going to do. And yeah. then I looked at the paycheck and I was like, ha ha, right. no. Yeah, right? Like seven twenty-five an hour. Am I a child? How am I supposed to live off that? Yeah, no. Um, and so then the plan was, oh, I just need like management experience. Like just get management experience and then you can go back to NGOs and like make decent amount of money. And even now it's like, yeah, that would be fun. Don't really want to risk my life that much. I know we're all supposed to be like, <laughs> let's be unalive, but <laughs> I got to wait a couple of years. Got yeah. siblings, can't traumatize them too much. Right. I feel that. And like, even with that, I, you know, was talking with my parents and, you know, trying to figure out exactly like where I ultimately, you know, would like to spend my time. And, uh, and I mean, even though I'm, you know, the plan is to go to law school in like next year, it's like, I've, I've understood that coming into a, like a, a sum of money or whatever, I've realized that, okay, like this is all trash, but there is, there's something about being able to, to not worry about like where your next meal is coming from that gives you some level of <laughs> like almost clarity that it's like, been shown in studies that the poorer you are the more you stress out and the worst decision making ability that you have um but yeah that's what makes capitalism so addictive is that listening. at a certain point you have access to almost everything and like wouldn't you want access to any 
everything. And like, if I just have to give you like a couple hours a day to get access to everything, it seems pretty nice. But it's like the longevity of it is where it's like, I cannot do 40 hour weeks for the next 60 years. Yeah. That just sounds like hell. I don't want to do that. But that's like, that's the, that's the game plan for our generation is just work until you're 80 then don't work for two years and die. Right. And I, I don't want to do that. Like that just it doesn't sound appealing. No. And but also do... like, sorry, go ahead. I kind of also got caught up in this thing of like, Oh, like you've graduated. So now you've got to know what you want to do and start making like these really intricate, like five-year plans about what milestones I need to hit at what time and blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of was just like, mm, no, I want to be young. I want to make mistakes. I want to like, yeah. like it within reason. I'm not going to kill anybody or something, right. <laughs> but like, I, I am giving myself permission to have the early twenties that like the last generation had, you know, when you just kind of worked here and you worked there and you made enough money to live and then you did what you wanted and didn't worry about it. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of what I am looking for just to enjoy myself because I, one, don't believe the earth's going to be here for that much longer. So that's an incentive. And a lot of the things that I've, put a lot of like stress into like student loans are just going to be there for forever. So it doesn't actually matter. Like with my interest rate, the amount that took out and like the amount of money that I'm making now, I might as well just be like, yeah, I'll get to those later. Like, eh, it doesn't like, yeah. And also maybe the economy will collapse and I don't have to pay it back. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know. I'm like tired of having to like compete but to be honest i probably like burnt out in high school and okay. and had the first year of, of uni being like what am i doing yeah um but that's one of the reasons i'm glad i left america uni outside like the u.s is yeah. so much easier i don't know what y'all are doing y'all had homework none of that over here even would be like oh yeah i have to like do five pages of homework i'd be like why are you serious like, they didn't have like none like that over there none none oh my god i did two essays i did two essays per class and then i was done you show up you the only homework was reading and when i tell you uh whatever y'all all messed up y'all all messed up by going Go to, to college school. here <laughs> yes go to school outside of america it was three years right you did have a shorter time it was three years. It cost less money, probably not for the rest of y'all because I didn't qualify for in-state tuition anywhere. Three years, no homework, cheap flights to Europe, and everyone is an alcoholic there, so you can go drinking with your professor. What more do I need to say? Nothing like getting drunk on Friday with your professor and him being like, so I liked your essay. And he'd be like, that's good because I was worried about it. Oh, that's so dope. Oh, my goodness. But no, yeah, we, uh, 
I've had some nights where I stayed up. I I, I remember staying in the lab because I was a physics major. So we had to do yeah, like I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I don't know what he's doing, but that's fine. Listen, and I had to stay in the lab for like three days. I was in there like sun up, sun down. I slept in there. I remember my friend coming over and like giving me food and stuff. And yeah, it was a whole thing. That is the ghetto. Um, <laughs> one time I wrote an essay drunk. <laughs> so. Oh. I'm pretty sure a lot of us have been there. <laughs> I've definitely been there. I wasn't. I wasn't drunk. I got drunk to write the essay. To write the. Oh, okay. I got. Yeah, because I thought that would be funny, and that I overthink this like way too much, and so I'm just gonna get drunk through the process of writing an essay, and turned out okay. I guess. Got to see. Probably would not have gotten anything higher. Seeing as I thought getting drunk was the What's solution. The to writing the essay. Um, yeah, no, that sounds horrible. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm I, grateful for the experience because, like, I love physics and, you know, just the the way that it trained. Well, the way that it trained you to think about the world. Like, you have to think about it in a holistic way of like how things work. Um, all things are pretty much all things. Like there's nothing different from like, you know, this sock that I have on to the sun radiating light or whatever. It's like all of it's made of the same stuff. So it really brings you down to earth and humbles you because it's like sometimes, you know, people might have like this God complex or you know, that they're better than someone right next to them. And I'm like, well, we're made of the same stuff, like literally made of the same stuff. And it just, it's just put together differently and there's nothing extraordinary about it. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I don't know. I liked my degree. I had a lot of fun. Um, I think- 20% of people, 20, 30% of people, I think actually go into like what their major was. Yeah, so I started asking people around me, like right before I started go applied for colleges, like what their degree was in. And the amount of people who said something whack and I was like, uh. so that's when I went in, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. Cause it actually right. doesn't matter. They just wanna know you can start and finish something. Exactly, exactly. And that's what my grandfather said too. Like, And you know, that's what my grandfather was saying. And it was really interesting when I thought about that because that's basically what I was doing when I was like working with Microsoft, like mm -hmm. that is not physics. So yeah, it's something totally, but whatever, we're going on a tangent, but um, you have, you've had the, the experience of living outside of the US and being in uh, spaces that were predominantly white, uh, predominantly uh, Asian American, no, not Asian American, Asian. Asian, yeah, in Singapore. Yeah. And so, like, how how was that experience like for you navigating that space and actually, like, especially in your formative years, wasn't it? Because it was mm -hmm. like that was real. You were a teenager going into those spaces. So how how did that affect the way you thought of yourself and like just how you were as a person in general? This will be the one time I give my mother a compliment. Um, a lot of the skills that I 
used and used most often are skills that she instilled in me. Um, about presentation of self and then a lot of like other um, dumb stuff, you know, like the ability to play tennis and horseback ride and stuff like that. Like, oh, you know how to swim and you're black. Wow, that's really not what people expect. Like those things, like those skills, I they're actually useful. And um, yeah, okay, so Singapore, my relationship with Singapore is is very parallel to my relationship with my ability to move seam seamlessly um, in spaces that aren't meant for me. Um, so on one hand, Singapore was very isolating for me. Um, it was very hard. Uh, the kind of like the social norms and rules were very different. Um, I was already seen as like uninvited. Mm. Um, I went to a local school and not an international school. So on top of being um, an American, I had, was also the only black person a lot of people had seen in person before. And so like things that you know, like Americans know you can't say like you, your hair looks very dirty and untidy. People were saying to me um, at school and I was getting like in actual trouble for because I was like out of uniform regulation. Um, and there's like- I remember so many, I, I remember us talking about like, I think this was around the time when we first moved there. Mm -hmm. And like we would talk on the phone or some app we were, was it WhatsApp? It was probably WhatsApp. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like you would tell me about certain experiences that you had. And I was like, I just, I don't know how you're Yeah, like feeling. children running past you and like making a face and people trying to rub brown off of you and touching your hair in public and just like construction workers just yelling, hey, my nigga, at you. And you're like, excuse mm. me. <laughs> I am a child, first of all. And also like, what um a lot of stuff like that which just like made life very sad and very difficult and very isolating but on the other hand it was the most amount of freedom that i was that i had ever gotten at that point i mean in america you have to have a car to go everywhere and if you don't you're kind of really just like stuck in your house versus singapore because the public transportation system was so good and it was such a safe place that I was just allowed to like go out and just be out and you know and because I was so odd looking to them like nobody was going to like attack me because it would be very obvious it'd be like oh yes this one black girl that we have on the whole island like you can't really um but yeah but also it was very an a very interesting experience for me and how I lived in my blackness because a lot of that is like because there's so many other black people around you you just like there's no reason to like think about anything like right. things that like being made fun of for being like really thin is not weird because you know everyone is and yeah. you know it's kind of a thing that just goes around um getting made fun of like, oh, you talk white, that's fine. Because like, 
at a certain point, everyone that was black that I was hanging around with was also speaking like white people, quote unquote. So that didn't make sense. But if, once you leave the country and your blackness isn't grounded in other people who have shared experiences as you, it becomes much harder to like define what's your personality and what's like your identity. And that when you're like, and frustrated about how other people are treating you it's hard to like not internalize that as like you were bad Mm. and I think that was the hardest part because there was nothing like there was no other people who were experiencing what I was experiencing so I couldn't tell if they didn't like me because they didn't like me or if they didn't like me because of my like interpretation of blackness was not what they had in their head that's you and so that's kind of where you kind of just turn inward, right? You like work on yourself and you like find things that make you happy or whatever. And so that was interesting. But yeah, the amount of wealth that there's also crazy. I hung out with some expat kids and we went to brunch and we were like 14. (laughs) And I just remember being like, this is this is kind of weird. It was like seven of us. Yeah. We got a table and we had like faux mimosas and had brunch. And I was like, so what do we do after this? And they're like, go shopping. And I was like, oh, okay. And then after that, <laughs> we saw a movie. It was like a whole day. And I was just being like, this is not normal what we do. And like right, yeah. drank out of champagne glasses. And I was like, this is wild. And, and that was normal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It kind of skewed that. And then again, my parents, um, do well for themselves mm-hmm. and every time I had like made myself comfortable in a in a certain like tax bracket or something we'd move tax brackets and I'd be like oh okay and this is what we're doing now like now it's okay for people's first car to be Range Rovers cool I, I yeah um it's cool for people to spend like seven hundred dollars on on prom dresses and rent Lamborghinis to go to take us to prom and stuff. And that was weird. And, and so now I find it valuable because there isn't a space that's more uncomfortable, right? Mm. Like the amount of places where I'm like unfazed by stuff is most places to make me uncomfortable. You would have to try very, very hard and, and I think that there's a benefit in that. Um, but also it's like when I worked in New York, the people that I had access to was like very specific um, upper management people. Uh, and so the ability to be unfazed is kind of important there because people will try and get away with stuff because of who they are. And if you just don't know, then it makes it easier to be like, what? Yeah. Um, and then uh, the only thing that I think I find annoying is that when other people try to impress upon you the importance of a person, it's like, hmm. no. I, I Wait, can, you, can you explain that a little bit? Um, so my job was an event coordinator and it was a space that brands could rent out and we had a brand who wanted to have like their um, director's meeting in 
in our space and I was working with them for several days. Um, and then the walkthrough comes and the girl that I've been speaking to comes and she's like walking, I'm like walking her through the space, kind of telling her what's going to happen. And she turns to me and she goes, I just want you to know that this is really important. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she was like, no, like you don't understand. Like the president is coming. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like I, I don't know what you think I'm doing. Like, do you think right. I'm purposely doing a bad job and that I need to be better, but this is what I do. And so I do a good job every time. And so she was just like, no, like the president is coming. This needs to go off really well. And I just kept being like, there is no, there's no better. I operate at 100% because right. I'm good at my job. So right. there is no better I can give you. This is how I, Right. Like do all of my things and so that was just the thing she kept bringing up and I just at the end was just like I don't know what she wanted from me did she want me to be like oh, the president because so. the funniest it. thing is he wasn't like that's not even the highest person that had been there so I was again just like uh, okay yeah this is a space that all the brands use to use like different Right. So a lot of important people come in. The important thing is that the space is well prepared and like, I'm not. Right. It doesn't matter yeah. who's coming. It's right. And so that's always annoying because it's like, do you try less hard at your job when it's not someone important? <laughs> that's what I feel like I'm always asking. Like, oh, okay, thank you. Um, but then I'm. The opposite side, like being able to work in these spaces often makes you the the person who gets all those like weird compliments, you know, like, oh honey, you're so well spoken. Yes. You're so confident. Yes. I would hope so. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I've had so many of that, like people saying, Oh my goodness, I can't believe you know this. Or Oh my goodness, this is so like the way that you the way that you ran that meeting was so amazing. I can't even believe that you were able to, you know, keep it going like you did. And I was just like, okay. I remember my manager, one of my managers, um, she our introductory meeting that we had, she said, I'm a huge fan of Obama. That was the <laughs> And I sat there, I was like, am I in a film or something? Like, do, do you not know that that's the, that's the, one of the things that you just don't, like, don't try and, it, but anyway, it, to her point, she was trying to be, you know. Um, okay, that's, I'm trying to think of something that, oh, I was, <laughs> Okay, so this entire story is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So I was put on, I was recommended by my manager to be on the planning board for Black History Month, which I thought, this is really great. You know, I am first new and also coordinator level. And the rest of the people on the board are like much, much higher than me. So I go to the first meeting 
And thank God there's like one other black woman there that I've met before who is an amazing person. She was like my rock there, right? And so then we go and we like introduce ourselves and everyone's saying hi. The next meeting, my friend's not there and the SCP of human resources who's running the leading meeting spends the entire meeting calling me the wrong name. The entire meeting. 30 minutes <laughs> calling me the wrong name. And it gets better because the woman whose name she's calling me is supposed to be traveling with her the upcoming weekend, traveling with her to interview um the the family that owns the conglomerate right oh wow so she's like also very important and someone who she's spent tons of time with so she goes the entire meeting calling me the wrong name and as i'm leaving i like pull her assistant and i'm like hey just to make sure you should probably tell her that i'm not interviewing them this weekend because that would be really embarrassing for me and also for her to be like, oh, it's so-and-so. And then the woman comes out and she doesn't look anything like me. And she's like, yeah, it's fine. So then later in the day, um, the person who's running the man- the meeting comes up to me and it's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, Sonny. Um, I've been, I was calling you the wrong name the whole meeting. And I was like, you know what? It's fine. And she's like, you should have stopped me. What? <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. In front of everybody. Right? Like, someone your level, I should have stopped you in the middle of a monologue to tell you that's not my name. No, I'm not doing that. Um, But everyone else in my office's reaction to that story was like, yeah, honey, you should have stopped her. I went home and I told it to, like, my Black friends, and they were like, yeah, you did the right thing. And I was like, of course I did. Why would I? I was, Yeah. So the Black History Month thing was uh, a trip. Right. So, um, oh, goodness, where is it? So for the the IGTV that you uh, you watched, what resonated with you with with what she was saying in in just the fullness of that, that video? The it's the it's the reality that the like SNL video the day Beyonce turned black is based on, like uh, okay. it is is the root of that is mm-hmm. being the only black person in a room and people being like yeah but like not really you like urban and you're like not really me <laughs> or like um oh, so like, like thrifting, right? I like vintage clothes and stuff like that. And just talking about vintage clothes and people being like, oh, like, and also Jordans. And you're like, no, I, I was talking about the 50s. Do you think Jordans were in the 50s? Um, Yeah, it's the, it's that bit of it. And just kind of, like, I know you don't think you're racist, but I'm at your birthday parties. I'm at your, like, after work drinks. I am at your, you know, weddings. I'm at your 
anniversary dinners. I'm at these places and I see how you treat other people of color. I see how you treat staff. I've been mistaken for staff on places where you're like, how could I possibly on cruise ships where they wear like very distinctive colors yeah. and somebody was just like here what I was like no um places like that and while I know that you don't see anything in your actions that don't that doesn't mean that they aren't there and your idea of blackness should be as full as like your idea of whiteness like you wouldn't no one would ever say that culturally Upper West Side whites and Appalachian, like, hill people have the same culture. So right. why, why, am I, why am I being asked to explain why Black people don't go to, to museums? That is such a great analogy. Like and, that, that's perfect. Because it's like, we are really the only group of people, well, of course, there are others too, but definitely very prevalent with the Black community that is grouped by one, either one person or one action or one thing. And it's like, we're, we're complex individuals. And they're in being black is not a monolith. The the black experience is not, of course we have shared experiences and, and everything like that, but everybody doesn't like the same thing. Everybody doesn't identify the same. Everyone has their own separate experiences that inform their perspective on the world. And to group all of us together, it especially, but it seems to be only with negative, you know, or what they deem as negative. Right. So, I don't know, moving in these spaces, it's always been a thing that I don't explain other Black people's behavior. I don't do that. Um, I also just say, I don't know. I think that throws people off a lot where they're like, oh, why are people so obsessed with shoes? And I don't know. And then watch them flounder and be like, well, what do we say next? Like, that doesn't concern me. I don't know. I don't like sneakers. Now what? And and pushing people back. And I think, obviously, I can get away with a lot because, like, the angry black woman stereotype is very helpful in certain situations. But, um, yeah, I those are things that I, I learned in these spaces. Like, pe- when people want to have like debates, or like when pe- when you're brought as like a showpiece to people, like, oh, this is funny. She like da da da. And then just, I just don't answer dumb questions. I don't ask, I don't answer questions that are asking me to explain politics, explain like racial stuff. I just say, oh, you know, I'm sure I could like text you a really good book about it, but I'm here, you know, as a guest or I'm here to have as someone's guest or at a party, like I, I don't know. And so kind of like making people work for their own stuff. Um, has been helpful, but also just ignoring people. I know it's bad, but there's only so loud somebody will ask you if you play basketball. So there's only so loud they're willing to get. And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. That comes a lot. That question. Absolutely. 
So what is your definition of God? Um, I think my definition of God is like faith. I don't, I'm not particularly religious, but I mm-hmm. admire people who are because to give that much over to your, of yourself over to the idea that things are not in your control and someone else is like has a plan for you takes a lot of strength. And I think that um, it just, to believe in God is, is the definition of like blind faith. You just have to go with it. I don't particularly like organized religion. I think that it leaves too much room for men just to tell you what to do. But yeah, the idea of God sounds really nice. What does hope look like for you? Curiosity. I think that Wondering is how you get to to better things. Like thing, things aren't found by accident. Like it takes someone wondering if this could be better. Yeah. And I think as long as people are like actively trying to make things better, then I think that's directly tied with hope. Yeah. I feel that curiosity. What's one thing that you wish you learned about yourself sooner? To stop giving them time. I think that like a lot of insecurities kind of are based around the idea that you have to be nice Mm. and polite to people. And I've had more fun being very rude and unfazed than I have being polite. We'll leave leave there. (laughs) What is the difference between living and existing? Living and existing. Um, I can say existence is very bleak. Living, I don't know, is like laughing I think if you live a day if you go like a day without laughing at something you didn't do it right you did not do it right laughing yeah existence just has to be like if you got no joy out of the day if if it's like if it's two and I have gotten no joy out of the day I'm getting high and I'm going to sleep And I think that should be how everyone works. Two o'clock, if it's not, if by two o'clock, if it's not a good day, it's not going to be a good day. Start over tomorrow. You start over. Yeah. What's one thing you wish the world had more of? Marginalized people in powers of position, in position of power. Yeah, I think almost everything could be solved, like, in three years, definitely. 
You can find Sunny on Instagram. All of her information will be in the description below. And again, thank you, Sunny, for taking the time to speak with me and to share with me your perspective on these topics. We are uploading new chapters every Sunday and Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, anywhere that you can find podcasts. Our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything that you need, reading and raging, will be in the link in the description below. So if you're open to continuing these conversations, please like, comment, share, subscribe, and be a part of the RRC family. One conversation can change the trajectory of someone's life for the better. Together, we can make this happen for you, for me, and for everyone around us. Thank you so much for tuning in, and remember to take some time to look inward and start with forgiveness. Remember to wear your mask, remember to vote, and we'll see you on the next one. Love always.